This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it is only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today, we're going to take a look inside the 2012 race for the presidency. What are the advantages and challenges of mounting a campaign from inside the White House? We'll speak to a man who has literally been there and done that. Ed Gillespie, former head of the Republican National Committee and former counselor to President George W. Bush. Then, the rubber meets the road. We'll speak to two of the most experienced political consultants around when it comes to campaigns and elections at the highest level, Jeannie Mamo and John Halinko. They take the deep dive into the future of the 2012 race with us here on Polyoptics. But of course, I am joined as always by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. I encourage you to get there. Check it out. Check out our Facebook page. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, and it is great to have you here, my friend. Great to be with you, Adam. It's a big week, you know, and not we're going to talk a lot about the 2012 election this week. But what has caught my eye are things that have nothing to do with this current presidential effort. There's a couple things. One is on the Reels channel, Joel Cerno's uh, multi-part miniseries on the Kennedys. Not very well acted, but incredible set design and direction, use of green screen and they studied the the pictures of Camelot so closely, and I've never seen a White House of the 60s better recreated on film. I've been dying to see that. That that really struggled to get on the air, didn't it? Well, they had a lot of opposition, and you can kind of understand why. Uh, they do the actors who are who are playing who are portraying Jack and Bobby really do a deadpan, but of course it covers some things that you know the Kennedy family doesn't necessarily want to see portrayed. What else caught your eye this week? Well, in- interesting. You know, uh, we, I hope we get a chance later on in the show to talk about Chris Christie, who I just love watching on YouTube videos. He uh, he hit the jackpot this week with a four-year-old kid named Jesse Cozon, who was crying and said he wanted to be governor. Chris Christie turns around, makes him honorary governor for a day, home run in the YouTube world. You want to hear a funny story about that? My wife used to uh, be the head of research for uh, Diane Sawyer at ABC News, and she messaged Diane early yesterday morning, who ironically was in New Jersey doing an interview with Chris Christie, and she asked him about it, and it was not scripted at all. He just sort of answered, yeah, by the way, that that young boy who was in that crying video that's gone viral is going to be here, and they had it on World News last night, and like you... I really am a fan of what what uh, social media and YouTube has done for Chris Christie, but he got an extra bounce from Diane Sawyer last night, putting that out for the whole country to see. That's right. And the third thing, old media, you know how much a student I am of, of Time Magazine and, and what their covers say about our culture. And they did a cover um, back in uh, many years ago of Ronald Reagan, and the cover had a tear in his eye and said, how the Republicans went wrong. And they've got a cover coming out this week with Abraham Lincoln on the cover, Why We're Still Fighting the Civil War. Same part of the face, same design, again with a tear coming down Lincoln's cheek. So I just I think the folks in the art department of Time magazine, even though the magazine struggles and print is not what it used to be, the covers are still very arresting. They are. And those those images... uh 
not only are arresting, but they, they sort of burn into our national psyche. And when we see that parallelism years later, we know that it, uh, it, it takes us back to places that uh, we long for and remember fondly. Uh, I think that the 2012 race having gotten underway this week for me, even despite the other news in the country, uh, has really captured my attention from a polyoptics perspective, Josh. Well, I think it kind of got got off to a whimper, as I hope we discuss later on in the show. The, the Obama campaign put out a very nicely produced video to say that they were up and running. They started taking money. There was a profile in the New York Times of Jim Messina sit, standing in a vacant, vast office space in Chicago. And tell people who Jim is. Oh, Jim was a longtime uh, uh, Obama uh, aide. Uh, from the Senate, uh, and also came with him to the White House. He was one of the first deputy chiefs of staff. And as often happens at about the three-year mark, the people who uh, are are really going to carry the torch on the political side of the of the fight uh, for the next 12 months and 16 months going into the election, they are going to take up station in Chicago for Obama 2012, Jim Messina leading the charge. That's right. And it, it, this this uh, giant empty space, which will soon be you know, awash in youth and experience and zeal trying to get the president reelected in this bifurcated uh effort, if you will, because the president has to still be president while he is also a candidate for president. And that's one of the things that we want to talk to our first guest about. Uh, My former boss, uh, former head of the Republican National Committee, uh, counselor to President George W. Bush, you may know who he is. His name is Ed Gillespie. We're real lucky to have you here on Polyoptics. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. We are really interested this week as we take a look at uh, the optics of a re-election campaign. The president has thrown his hat in the ring as if there was any question that he will seek re-election. This being an incumbent and running for re-election really represents some unique advantages and some real serious challenges, doesn't it? Well, there's no doubt uh, they are uh, the two sides of the same coin, the, the opportunities and the challenges. Uh, Obviously, as president of the United States, you command a lot of attention. You set the agenda. uh, You're able to, you know, to travel around the country on Air Force One, which is no small uh, advantage, um, and and uh, do official duty events as well as. And then while you're there, you can do some campaign events. At the same time, uh, you have to govern uh, while you're campaigning, which your opponent, uh, you know, the Republican nominee, will not, you know, be in a position of having to govern, and you know that can take you off. Track in terms of your campaign, you you know end up being hit with uh, crises of the day, things like Libya or uh, you know we'll see what happens with the debt limit. But you have to uh, be the chief executive uh, at the same time you're you're trying to campaign, and that's a real challenge. Ed, uh, how much is money a factor in terms of the incumbent able to raise as much as he can, and and the the amount that he can he can command at fundraisers, and the funding aspect for challengers who need to who have a lot lower profile, and then how much can the playing field be leveled in some of the work that Democrats are doing, and for you and Carl Rove are doing as well? Well, a couple of things. One, if the president, you know, really is going to to do a billion dollar campaign, uh, which everyone seems to think is, you know, a legitimate goal, uh, you know, that's going to take a ton of time. It's a year and a half away, right? I mean, you, you can't really be raising money, you know, once you get into October because you're just spending it flat out. So let's say it's 500 days to raise a billion dollars. That's if my math serves me correct, and I was an English major, so, <laughs> but it's, you know, that's $2 million a day 
going forward. That's a that's a pretty hefty uh, you know haul to to be focused on. Uh, but I think they can do it. At the same time, I think the Republican nominee will have pretty close to that as well uh, in resources because, uh, you know, as President Obama did not take the, the federal funds, the matching funds uh, last cycle, I don't think the Republican nominee will take the matching funds this cycle and will be outside the public finance system and be able to raise unlimited uh, money. And that will level the playing field more than it was against Senator McCain in 2008 right there. And then at the same time, you've got these outside groups uh, operating under McCain-Feingold, the 527s and the C4s. They're going to be very active um, uh, on the outside on both the left and the right. So uh, I don't think there's going to be, you know, a, a financial advantage for either side in uh, in this cycle, although it is, it is easier for a sitting president to raise money than for a challenger. Let's talk for a second about strategy. I mean, being the head of a national party, uh, and we're seeing turnover there for the Democrats right now, uh, is incredibly important as you support uh, an incumbent president uh, in, in a run for re-election. Making that work is not easy. You've been in charge of that. You have uh, been through this very same challenge, and you probably spent a lot of time trying to understand and learn how uh, President Clinton went about leveraging that position for a win in his second term. Is the president at an advantage or a disadvantage, in your opinion, running for a second term from inside the White House? I think it's a net advantage. Uh, and, and you see that in the fact that, you know, generally uh, incumbent presidents seeking re-election tend to get uh, re-elected. Obviously, there are exceptions, but if you look at uh, President Clinton, President Reagan, uh, the second President Bush, um, you know, there, there are, I think the advantages are fairly clear. At the same time, you know, it is a, it is a referendum on you and your presidency, uh, and the focus is entirely on you. To, to my mind, uh, Adam, I think that, you know, the biggest question you know, uh, uh, when people ask me, you know, can President Obama be reelected? Of course he can. I think it's, you know, probably a 50-50 proposition. And the biggest variable in my mind is what is the unemployment rate in, in November of uh, 2012? Because when you look back at those presidents we just cited, uh, with the exception of Reagan, who, who had a 7.4% unemployment rate, but it had come down a full point and a half. Uh, in the in the 12 months prior to the election, so he was even though it was 7.4% unemployment, he was running ads, as you remember, you know, morning in America, because people felt like things were moving so much in the right direction. At the same time, you know, Gerald Ford had, uh, I think he was at 7.2%. Jimmy Carter was at 7.5% unemployment, and George W. Bush was at 7.4% unemployment. So, if President Obama is in that 7.5% unemployment uh, rate range. Uh, he's going to be, uh, you know, in trouble, I think, in, in November of 2012. If he's below it, he's going to be very competitive. One of the things that I think we, we, we really took note of, even in the in the midterm elections, is how technology has enabled uh, elections to become much more uh, accessible to the average public. Uh, Websites, social media, advertising in the digital realm makes a huge difference. The president really sort of set a new high bar in the last election, Ed. But it seems like uh, the Republicans are coming back and have learned a lot about what best practices are and how to, to make uh, really impactful statements uh, with their images uh, for the for the voting public. Uh, do you think that this is going to be another watershed election, or is this going to be an old sort of knock-down, drag-out brawl? I think it's going to be a brawl, and, and 
my guess is it's going to be close. It could break at the end, uh, as often happens in the electoral college, can you know kind of magnify the the, the win. But the country's pretty evenly divided. And on the social media, I do think uh, President Obama, uh, you know, the Obama uh, campaign was brilliant in its use of, of social media. And Republicans have since adapted, as is often the case, as we all know, in campaigns. One side adapts and, and uh, you know, gets itself up to speed after seeing, you know, the other side do something well. Uh, I know, for example, in, in the Virginia governor's race in 2009, Bob McDonald made very good use of social media and, uh, you know, constantly on Facebook and tweeting and, and uh, putting out YouTube videos. And that was a page taken from the Obama playbook. One of the things and, that, and the, uh, that McDonald did, Ed, was that he really brought forward, and I say this as a Virginian, I know you are too, uh, and a lot of our listeners here on, on Sirius XM who are listening to Polyoptics may not be as familiar, but he had a very compelling personal story. His family um, have, have been involved in serving the nation in uniform. I felt like those were some of the elements of that narrative story that he was able to bring out and introduce us to him as more than just a one-dimensional politician. Yeah, there's no doubt, and the, and the social media played an important uh, role in that. And I think that's, you know, that's more important in a governor's race or a presidential race when people are choosing an executive. Uh, you know, they want to have a sense of who that person is, as opposed to when they're, you know, voting for a senator or a house member to be an advocate. And uh, you know, I think you'll see the Republican nominee, whomever that is, uh, you know, use social media in that regard in in uh, this cycle as well. Ed, you you're talking earlier that. 2012 is going to be a brawl, and I suspect a lot of Democrats would want to know, from your perspective, a brawl against whom. Uh, if you think, <laughs> if you think about uh, two of the of the the last two elections in which uh, it was either uncontested or uh, or a Republican had to go against a Democratic incumbent, 1996, Bob Dole gets the nomination almost because he had it was. He deserved it after all of his years. Same, in a way, too, in 2008 with John McCain. But in 2000, you had a very fresh candidate, the governor of Texas. And so I'm wondering, can Republicans find that fresh candidate next year, or might it go to a stalwart who might not be able to go against this very formidable Democratic operation? Well, it, it's true, Josh. I think the the Republican side is more prone to, you know, turning to the next in line to a certain extent for our nominee. I don't think there's a very clear next in line this time, though. And and I, for for me, this is the most wide open nominating contest on the Republican side I've seen in some time. George W. Bush, the governor of Texas, was a fresh face in 2000, but he was also the son of the of the last Republican president. And and uh, you know, we don't have a dynamic there. I, I think you know. Some could argue that either Governor Romney or Governor Huckabee would be the you know presumptive front runner. Um, I don't think either either of them would actually argue that. Uh, I think you know they see that the field is pretty wide open and and still unformed. Partly, by the way, in terms of the late formation of the field, uh, you know by this time last year uh, or last uh, cycle in 2008, there were 17 declared presidential candidates. That there obviously the nomination was open on both sides, so there were Democrats and Republicans both had big fields. Uh, but, you know, here we are. President Obama is the only declared candidate for president right now. Uh, and that's partly because the Republicans can hang back a little bit. They can wait because of the benefit of social media. When they run, they'll be able to get, you know, on the on the board pretty quickly and get their message out to Republican primary voters in a way that Republican candidates or Democratic, for that matter, in the past haven't been able to. 
And that's why there's not this, uh, you know, there's a sense that, that people can wait to declare, um, you know, even though when you look at it, the AIM straw poll is in August. I mean, it's coming up. So I think they'll declare here pretty soon, but, but they are able to hang back. Ed, you were, you were born in Browns Mills, New Jersey. Uh, if you remember 2004, this unknown state senator, Barack Obama, gets up in the Boston Convention and wows the audience, and four years later, he's the president of the United States. Is there any scenario in which you envision a, a very fresh face, the governor of your, of your native state, New Jersey, Chris Christie, getting in, or a Marco Rubio getting in, people who, you, who just have not been in this top six gang of people who you think may be really going for this? Well, they've both said uh, that they're, they're not going to run. There's a lot of interest in both of them. Uh, you know, Governor Christie is a, is a YouTube sensation in a lot of ways, and, uh, you know, his strong leadership in New Jersey has endeared him to a lot of Republicans around the country. Marco Rubio, clearly rising star in the party and fantastic messenger for, you know, a, a conservative perspective uh, on policy. Uh, but they've both said that they're, you know, they're not going to run in, in uh, 2012, and I, you know, take them at their word in that regard. Uh, but, Josh, there is a lot of interest in both of those, uh, b- both of those uh, political figures. Well, one of the things that struck me, Ed, as uh, we sort of wrap up with you here on Polyoptics, here on POTUS, is that uh, the announcement of the president's uh, re-election campaign came in the form of a video, perhaps not unexpected that he would turn to YouTube to make that announcement, but he was nowhere to be found. I mean, it was a logo, and there was no Barack Obama in the Barack Obama announcement. What did you think about that? I wasn't surprised. Look, I I think that, you know, as we talked about the advantage, disadvantage of, uh, you know, being the president and and running for re-election, there is a disadvantage to having to declare so early, and I think he had to declare so early because of that billion-dollar fundraising goal and having to have an account open and be able to start to to take money into a, uh, a re-election campaign account. Uh, but, you know, it does, it, it, he is now a candidate. And, you know, everything is seen through a more political prism. And he had to give up kind of the, you know, the uh, being only the president of the United States uh, early to, to say, I'm not just, I'm not only the president of the United States, I'm a candidate for president of the United States. And that's somewhat, you know, that, that hurts him, I think, in, in some regards. So I'm not surprised that he tried to thread the needle of having to get that campaign account open and get the you know the operation up and running, but at the same time, you know, not make too big a deal of it and look too political too soon. We are real lucky to have you with us here on Polyoptics on POTUS, Ed Gillespie, former counselor to President George W. Bush, uh, former head of the Republican National Committee and an active force in the Republican Party today. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on, guys. Great to be with you. Thanks, Ed. Few people, Josh, know more about where and how presidents get elected than Ed Gillespie, uh, a real tactician who spends a lot of time and is very appreciative of the other side in these campaigns and understanding what's going on uh, in the other camp, if you will, wouldn't you say? That's right. You know, <laughs> I, I, Ed is is old school in a sense that partisanship has not overtaken him. And, and he is, uh, I think he remains quite close with his counterpart when he was chairman of the RNC, a guy named uh, Terry McAuliffe, who was chairman of the DNC, both Virginians, and I think both friends. And you see them sort of doing a, 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 a one-two punch act in a lot of events in Washington these days, showing that even as partisanship gets to the uh, new heights, these guys can still uh, 
share a steak and a drink at the end of the day. Indeed, full disclosure, I work for a firm in Washington, D.C. that Ed started. It's called Quinn Gillespie, and it is a bipartisan firm. Uh, The chairman of the company is President Clinton's former White House counsel, Jack Quinn. Uh, Ed, uh, or, you know, Ed Gillespie has gone on to do many things. He spends a lot of time with charitable efforts. But uh, you could tell from his comments, Josh, when he says it's going to be a brawl, it's a brawl that he's getting ready to be a part of. That's right. You see that both he and Carl Rove are lining up to uh, exceed what they raised in the last off cycle of about $70 million. They're, I think, going for about 150 million dollars to raise for Republicans uh, in 2012. And, you know, I questioned him hard about who will be in the other side of the ring in that brawl, because right now we just don't know who that is. You know, one of the things that uh, ultimately is going to come to the fore very quickly for those folks who are, you know, the, the polyoptics practitioners within the campaigns are how do we craft an image that is durable enough and forward-looking enough to carry our candidate from where he is today through a primary and then into a general election. Now, that's less of a, of a concern for the president, but for the Republican side, it is a very serious concern, and we're lucky to be joined by two people who I greatly admire and respect. I'm privileged to call them friends. Jeannie Mamo, a political consultant here in Washington, D.C., formerly served in the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, as the head of media affairs, and John Hlinko, a Democrat who has been involved in presidential politics himself, going way back, and uh, somebody who is a foremost expert on uh, messaging and digital and social media in the political realm. Josh King, I want to start this discussion, if you will allow me, please, uh, on what I think has really captivated me the most. The 2012 race for the White House is underway. Can you believe it, Adam? Here we are in early April 2011. The primaries are less than a year away, And we just have our first announced candidate, Barack Obama. We don't even have any Republicans formally in the field. I I appreciate that. I got some nodding heads here. Uh, Jeannie Mama, you were inside the Bush White House when the 2004 reelect came about. Josh was in the Clinton administration when that reelect came about. What are the things that are striking to you about how this started? The president has thrown his hat in the ring and... uh, where are they headed? I mean, we're going to talk about everything, but but give us a start. Um, well, first, I want to just talk about how they did it. Um, and as you guys have discussed, I'm sure many times on the show, it's never a good time to uh, plan something because the minute you plan it, it's over. Um, they put out a video and their candidate was not in the video. So what are the optics of that? Does that mean they don't want to you know, showcase their candidate? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's interesting. This is a tense week. Uh, This is a week where the president went on the air to talk about uh, the military engagement in Libya and then to have video out there of him talking about politics would might seem discordant. If you think back to 2007, remember Barack Obama got a very early start using the mastery of video by his using his faux Monday night football announcement and then announced his campaign, uh, as did Hillary Clinton, through carefully produced video packages. So this is a, a great contrast to that. And it does show that here we are in April, many months uh, past when you might expect announcements to come, 
and we have announcements that don't even feature candidates. John Hlinko, I mean, he used social media. I mean, this was yeah. a YouTube announcement. And it was, I think, something that people are getting a little bit more used to, to see that being the platform. No, I think the analysis is spot on. I mean, the reality is it's a great way to launch. Because, I mean, what he's doing initially is, you know, launching to his committed supporters. And the reality is they're out there in droves, uh, you know, on social media, on YouTube. So why not get something out there that can just, you know, and it's not going to spread like wildfire like the last time. There's just not, it's just, it's different when someone's an incumbent. But, you know, he has announced, and, you know, I'm sure at, at some point, Republicans will actually get into the race before November 2012, and it'll be interesting. I got to tell you what, I looked at this video, I sort of take uh, Jeannie's take on it. I appreciated it for what it was, and it had sound uh, or you know, uh, interviews or people talking about uh, what they hoped for this re-election. There was a young kid who wasn't able to vote the first time around, and he's part of that yes-we-can group, but now he really can. Um, but, but, you know, Lord knows... There's no there there for me either. There's no Barack Obama. The the logo is the same, and I, I really applaud them for realizing, Josh, that uh, they didn't need to reinvent the wheel. They had something that was absolute gold, and they've embraced it. No, that's right, and I've written about this many times, which is the consistency of the Obama graphic design and message throughout 2008 while his opponents, first his primary opponents and then his general election opponent, kept tinkering with their look and feel was one of his greatest strengths. So to bring that back for a redux is a great move for them. I was just surprised that, I mean, he was and still is a dynamic president. I mean, he is their best voice. And so I just, I understand that, you know, it's a it's a little bit of a dichotomy and you got to run a war and run for re-election. But the fact that it was online, I think he could have been in that video. And quite frankly, I think he should have been in that video. I mean, that is why people got involved in his campaign is because of him, not necessarily because of his video. Um, I was really, really surprised because they are really good at this and, and they'll get better, obviously. But that was a shock to me. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I was a little surprised as well. I mean, I, mean, I think, you know, we'll see more than enough, you know, rousing speeches before adoring fans and stuff. But it was an interesting choice. And, and I think maybe when you're an incumbent and you're threading the needle and there's wars and budgets and, you know, toads falling from the sky and God knows what else. Hey, you know, maybe you got to play down a little bit, but it, it was an interesting choice for sure. I have a question for John. You know, if, if you compare what we're talking about now to eight years ago, uh, John, you were behind uh, the creation of the draft Wesley Clark movement. How does the tools available to the modern candidate, both an incumbent president and a challenger, either within the party or in the opposing party, how are the technology tools different today than they were back when you were trying to raise Wesley Clark out of anonymity and toward a full-fledged candidacy? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I mean, mean, to be honest, it's kind of mind-blowing to think. So the draft Clark movement started in the spring of of, uh, 2003, and at the time, YouTube didn't exist. Facebook didn't exist. Or maybe Mark Zuckerberg was just using it to try and, you know, pick up women in his dorm room or something. You know, it, it it was at the very, very beginning. And, and the idea that we had to do that without YouTube, without Facebook, without all these tools that had just become indispensable, without Twitter, I mean, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Um, I mean, honest to God, it, it, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, and it makes me wonder, you know, what would have happened in 92, 96, 2000 had the Internet been far more advanced? I mean, would Colin Powell have been drafted? Would John McCain have won the Republican nomination in 2000? I mean, you know, all kinds of history could have been made. Yeah, I want to speak to that, too, because, you know, ironically, uh, John and I got to know each other around this draft Wesley Clark 
campaign. I was uh, running the Washington Bureau of ABC's Good Morning America in those days, and John was was busy trying to get the word out to major uh, national press that this was real. This this guy was eminently qualified, in their opinion, um, to be president of the United States. He was this character that was really felt like he had to be asked. He had to be pulled into this. He didn't want to put himself and his own ego first. He ultimately got into it. But without all of these uh, social channels and technologies that we take for granted uh, now, the really big way to get any kind of splash was you needed television. Remember, we worked yeah. on yep. you know trying to get a very large introductory television interview, and those things are so much harder to put together than clearly President Obama's ability to make a splash with remarkably less effort. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree 100%. I mean, the reality is, even in 2003, like I tell people, it was great that we had 50,000 emails in a database, but what really made it happen is when 50 million people you know, saw him and read about, you know, heard about the draft on TV and in the, the paper, I mean, on the radio. Um, but, you know, now we've hit a point where, you know, I, I think Sarah Palin's got almost 3 million followers on Facebook. I mean, I mean some, of the, some of the numbers are just sort of mind-blowing as, as to what people have and how they can instantly reach folks. And it, it's, it's, not, it's not a sufficient condition for winning by any stretch, but it certainly opens up a heck of a lot more possibilities. Well, that sort of goes to what Jeannie was saying earlier, which is, as you look at Obama's video, which does feature a lot of the people, as you said earlier, that didn't, weren't able to vote in 2008, maybe they'll be able to vote in 2012, the only picture of Obama in the entire video is a momentary clip of his announcement address in Springfield, Illinois, in uh, 2007. And yet, when you visit the White House website, you see every week a brand new high-definition video of the president giving his Saturday address. When he goes to Latin America, you have a three-minute package put together by uh, White House aides, as slick as any network package can be. So, and you have Sarah Palin, who's blogging and creating video messages from Alaska. And to what extent maybe can there be overkill? And maybe the Obama team thought, let's, at least in our first salvo, downplay it a bit. Well, I think it was more, um, personally, I think it was more what you said before, is that, you know, they're dealing with Libya and a budget, and they didn't want to inject the election in there. Um, I want to ask if... um, because I don't know the answer. I know the answer when I was at the White House that the numbers for the website are not that large. Um, they're growing, and I would love to know, you know, I'm sure they're growing every day, but they're still not enough to ignore everything else, I guess. I mean, well, you like, mean oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was just saying they didn't, they didn't use the White House website for this, nor could they no, no, by no. law. No, no, I just mean we were talking about their website and the fact that the president does a web video oh, every yeah. week, and I'm like... But that does that really get it done? I mean, I think it all works together, but we're not to the point where you can um, not do the other media. I think we're getting there, though. I really do. And Sarah Palin, as you said, is is working on that hard. <laughs> no, I, I think you raise a great point. I, mean, I think the reality is, and this is, you know, in my humble opinion, I think the web is great for rallying the base because those are folks who will pass around stuff. They'll actively look for stuff. But in terms of the, you know, most of the country who frankly doesn't really know where they stand and, you know, or will make their minds up as the election approaches, you know, at this point you can't ignore TV, you can't ignore radio, you can't ignore the more mainstream stuff that that frankly is just more geared towards the persuadables. But I do think you're right. I mean, as, as we get more and more to the point where video on computer is, is, is just getting better and better, 
And we're starting to hit a point where it, it's becoming a little more pleasant to watch it and the emotional richness of that. And, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. A video is worth, you know, a thousand pictures. Uh, and uh, we, we are starting to get more and more to that point. But I agree we're not there yet. You know, there's a tool that's out there that people have been talking about in Washington, D.C. a little bit more recently. It's called Visible Vote. It's a group that has been connecting lawmakers with their constituents. It's an app for your phone. And essentially what it does is it lets lawmakers sort of take a very public poll or pulse, if you will, of their constituents and understand where they are on issues that are going to be coming up before them before their vote is taken. So conversely, folks back home have a sense of where their elected official is. The president has made great strides. And I think we've talked about this here on Polyoptics, uh, certainly around the State of the Union, where they've added enhanced elements on the web and messaging and more detailed information around policy speeches. But I really believe that as we look into 2012 and we think about the the grand scope of this narrative and this optical uh, play of, of, of where the president is today and how they want him to be perceived as candidate Obama, while he is both simultaneously President Obama, that they've got a very long way to go, Josh. You all, co- you, you you dealt with this uh, in the Clinton administration, a very very popular president at that time, who was uh, dealing with some very heavy and very similar issues with the Congress to this president. What was the struggle, and how do you how do you position yourself to make this run? Remember, in 1995, there was the government shutdown. Um, and it was a square off between uh, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. And frankly, visually, we won that race. Uh, when the president and Speaker Gingrich went up to Littleton, New Hampshire, I believe, to hold a town meeting, as good a performer as Newt Gingrich was, Clinton was that much better. And when, it, when on the Daily News square off, it became uh, Bill Clinton, Leon Panetta, Mike McCurry, against uh, Newt Gingrich and uh, and the rest of the folks up on Capitol Hill, it just looked like the White House had the upper hand. I think there's a bit more of an even match today. You are listening to Polyoptics here on POTUS, Sirius 110, XM 130. John Halinko, Jeannie Mamo, me, Adam Belmar, and of course, Josh King, uh, taking you through the elements of a nascent presidential re-election campaign for President Obama and many challengers who are trying to suss out whether they get in or not. John Halinko, uh, your expertise is really uh, in social media, and it's not just about creating Facebook pages and what should we tweet. There is a very uh, strategic use of these mediums, along with paid advertising, that brings about uh, certain images that helps to, to get people riled up. Talk to me for a second about how big this re-election campaign is going to be in setting even brand new standards in that realm. Well, when you look at the money that they're talking about spending, I mean, when, you, when you're hitting the billion mark, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. And the reality is that there's going to be a lot of spending online on social media. And a lot of that is, you know, directly to rally the truce, but a lot of it is to create the perception of momentum. You'll hear people talk more and more about, well, who has the most Facebook followers, who has the most Twitter followers. That stuff's really important because it helps set the narrative. And no one wants to get on a, you know, a train that's slowing down. They want to get on one that's accelerating. And the reality is that 
you know, if you can show, I mean, I mean, this is frankly what we did with Draft Wesley Clark back uh, when we were taking pledges. Um, we, we took pledges what people would donate if he were to run. And I can't tell you how much traction we got from that number. People went nuts just watching it grow. Now this stuff is public. You got a Facebook page. Everybody knows how many fans you have. So I think there'll be a lot of effort to drive, um, I mean, frankly, through some serious advertising to, to drive folks toward the pages, to build up numbers. And that stuff does matter. I mean, it's sort of the modern equivalent of a crowd size at a speech. You know, if you have a few thousand followers and or a few thousand fans and no one's you know, paying attention, you're, you're not going to attract a whole lot more. Jeannie and John, one of the things that is not all that expensive, even in a billion dollar campaign, is the is a high definition video camera and the ability to upload that content. There was a young man uh, who worked for Barack Obama in 2007 when I followed that campaign to do an article for Men's Vogue. His name is Aaron Chaudhary, and today he is the first official White House videographer. And if you look back at his work during the campaign and his subsequent work at the White House, you can see that what, where speechwriters used to be glorified, the ability to be a one-man or one-person mobile video packager is now one of the most premium political skills on the horizon. If you are a challenger for the White House or the Senate or the House or governorships, where are you finding these people to do this kind of work in this cycle? I th- <laughs> it's a darn good question. I mean, the reality is, you know, we've seen the power of video. I mean, even in, you know, 2008, we saw the power of the Obama Girl video or of the 1984 parody or, you know, the Will I Am video. Um, now we've hit a point where the making of video has, has become a lot more democratized. I mean, not everybody has the talent to do it, but the reality is if you do have the talent, it's pretty darn cheap. I mean, we've got iPhones here. We could do some pretty decent videos that can get a lot of traction. Uh, in terms of finding the people, you know, that, that's if you if you – Find out where to find them. Let me know because I would love to hire them. Uh, how about the How about the freshman <laughs> at the New York University Film School? Yeah. There you go. T- I t- totally agree. Literally, the younger yeah. the better. The younger the better. To be sure, everybody who's coming out of uh, high school these days is familiar with basic video editing, what we call nonlinear or digital video editing, and this is the really the the technological piece that's taken video acquisition shooting it on your iPhone or, or having a camera and being able to turn it into something that feels produced, something that is actually compelling. And I love your example, Josh, of, uh, of, of Aaron's work because in the end, this is what we, and I, I was there, I was the chief of production for the George W. Bush administration, and we aspired to that, to that kind of work. We hadn't gotten that workflow down yet. We were still multi uh multi-part units when we shot there was a photographer there was an editor and it slowed things down it didn't give us the flexibility that the obama folks have really refined um and and i think back also to uh the george allen senate race it wasn't just the video that made races video can end a race too so welcome let's give a welcome to makaka here welcome to america and the real world of virginia you know, yeah. holding up that iPhone and catching George Allen calling you a macaca, whatever that is, it certainly was pejorative, and it certainly put the kibosh on his Senate candidacy. And uh, those things, I think, are also going to be incredibly important for candidates who are not Barack Obama, because nobody's running around with a camera chasing Barack Obama. You just can't do that. You're credentialed press. But everybody else who's going to be slogging through Iowa and New Hampshire, Jeannie, they're going to be followed by... 
you know, if you got a phone. Such a great point. I mean, this is, I really do think this is going to be a campaign. We say this every year, every election cycle, but, but I really believe it this time when it comes to video. These candidates are going to face things they have never faced before because you are on the record all the time. And everybody's got a flip camera. I have a flip camera. You know, I'm not going to tell, Jeannie I'm not gonna tell Mollett, you how know old how I incongruous am. That I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm actually pretty good with it now. Um, but, but yeah, so every 16-year-old, 12 to 16-year-old, you know, gets, in, gets a, a flip video camera before they get anything else. And so they're going to be following the, the candidates around, too. And the candidates have got to get in a mindset of when they see a 12-year-old kid, they have to know that, that they're on the record. Um, yep. And I'm worried about what that does to the to the sort of freshness and, yeah. and reality of the campaign. Is well, it is it going to be so staged? Every little move is going to be staged. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree. I mean, the reality is that it's hard to be spontaneous because I think every one of us has done something in our lives that if it were taken in a 15-second clip, that would sure as heck <laughs> torpedo our candidacy. I mean, every everyone has done something and taken out of context and blah, blah, blah. Um, and... We're going to see some of those moments this cycle. It's just it's going to happen. There's going to be probably one or two candidacies torpedoed by it, fairly or unfairly. And you're right. You know, when you look in the eyes of a 12-year-old, if a 12-year-old's holding an iPhone, you know, you better imagine that it's the <laughs> National News Network because that's where it could end up. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, think of since that George Allen moment, what happened to Helen Thomas? What happened to Gordon Brown when his microphone was on in his uh, Oh, in, I in love that moment. Can we just stop <laughs> for a second right there? You, people, you, if you're listening to us here on Polyoptics on POTUS, that Gordon Brown moment was... he. Well, Josh, you want to explain it? He's sitting there with a woman. He's just uh, finished uh, explaining uh, some policy elements, and, and she was going back at him, and he's got a wireless mic on. He gets into the car, and he calls her a bigot. It's a disaster. She never put me with that woman. Whose idea was that? I don't know, I can see. Oh, everything. She just herself bigoted woman. Right? <laughs> That's right. And and this is just because the that Gordon Brown who, woman. <laughs> that bigoted woman. Uh because he wasn't trained enough to realize that uh his campaign event is over, rip that darn thing off your belt and turn off the <laughs> sound. Because remember, this also happened to President Obama in a fundraiser. Uh, when he was talking about gun control in Pennsylvania and religion and his so-called bitter comment. There's a woman in the audience, name is Mayhill Fowler, was recording, and it gets uploaded to the Huffington Post. Pennsylvania primary is a week or two away after that, and it really has a major effect. Senator Clinton at the time wins that primary. That was the, uh, you know, hanging on to their guns and... Clinging to Clinging to their guns and religion. Um you know, one of the things, and we, we talked about this a little bit earlier here on Polyoptics with uh, Ed Gillespie, uh, but the, there's, it's, and in fact, I was about to say it's nuanced. You know what? It's really not. It is a, quite a bright line between what kind of political activity can go on in a White House and the business of the people. Now, Jeannie worked in the White House during a re-election campaign, and so I think you, you might speak to this best, but... You cannot be an employee of the executive office of the president and be doing campaign work. And yet, at some points, there's a convergence of strategy and thought about, well, we have, we have multiple goals here. We have policy goals. We have communications goals. And P.S., 
we got mirrors outside the White House who are running a campaign that we can't pretend we're, we're not aware of. Yeah, it, it's yeah. and it's so different than your first campaign. And your first campaign, everybody, the battleship is moving in one direction at one time. Um, and one of the things that I've thought about um, just this week um, as this campaign for, for Obama begins to really, you know, gel is um, the fact that they're going to be in uh, Chicago while the nucleus of the operation, i.e. the president himself and his staff, is going to be in Washington. And when President Bush ran his reelection, they were across the river in, in uh, Alexandria. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how they make that work. Now, obviously, we've just spent some time talking about technology and, well, that is that all you need is an iPhone and, and uh, you know, a cell phone to run a campaign. And, and I don't I don't know. I'm a little bit well, concerned. Well, discordant messages yeah. are a big problem at the presidential level. <clears throat> if you are pushing one line out of Chicago and something that is uh, either directly opposed to it or far enough off angle that it, it really has a different meaning, you have trouble, Josh. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, tell us a little bit about the trials and tribulations in the Clinton administration as he sought a second term. Well... We got lucky, I think. We hit on a incredible and incredibly powerful metaphor, which was the bridge to the 21st century. I got to say, it was not hatched on campaign headquarters grounds. It was hatched in the White House communications office. Uh, it came out of polling. It came out of uh, a lot of strategy sessions. But this metaphor of building a bridge to the 21st century, you were in 1996, the person you elected who took office in January of 1997, hopefully it would be a re-elected Bill Clinton, would also be the president as you turned the door to the next millennium. So we came up with that metaphor. We came up with uh, these three-word bites like protecting America's values, securing America's cities, uh, uh, um, returning America's greatness. All of these three-word bites got on every piece of campaign material and every event that we did they were always in the in the step and repeat backdrops that we did for all the events and we just rode that metaphor all the way to the 21st century all right john Hlinko, let me throw Mm -hmm. this at you considering what josh king just said we have a president who for the first two years of his presidency by and large did not use the well-honed repeated message certainly not in a visual way maybe to some extent in in a rhetorical way but now things have changed winning the future is the backdrop that is behind the president everywhere he goes those pictures are starting to show up and you see the consistency of them and you start to get the fact that they realize as josh just pointed out that to to really get penetration to make sure that you're connecting with people you need those messages that is really at the crux of what they have to do on the digital side too, right? Oh, it very much is. I mean, they've, they've got to do – I mean, they're in a good position in that he's still relatively popular, which is good, and, and the opposition field is still undefined, and, you know, and people are deciding what they want to do. But you know, I think he's in a tough position in that unemployment's still pretty darn high, and you don't want to seem all happy and giddy and kind of just you know, psyched about what you've done. Uh, even if you think things are going in the right direction, that's good and that's a start. So you need to project optimism. I mean, Americans consistently will elect the president or the candidate that they believe to be more optimistic, more looking towards the future. So you need to project that, but in a way that doesn't seem too over the top. 
But look, the guy is a phenomenal speaker. And um, I, I think we'll see a lot more and more of the 2006-2007 uh, Barack Obama starting to come out more and more and more as the campaign goes on. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll need to project that through, or they will need to project that, I should say, through uh, social media as well. Uh, there are a lot of followers, or a lot of a lot of fans, or followers, or likers, or whatever Facebook is calling it today, uh, of Barack Obama. But the reality is, a lot of those are from years past, and they need to be re-energized and pumped up and enthusiastic again. What's interesting is that the winning the future is itself a U.S. government phrase because it's found on the White House website. And if you think back, uh, there has a incumbent has president has not lost a campaign since 1988. George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush. And I think there will be a great test again uh, in 2012 uh, about the 747 versus the 757. The power of incumbency and Air Force One coming into a local market with a standard Secret Service motorcade package versus the guy who has to lease the 757 and slap his name up on the door. And it's just hard to do. So whether you are uh, John Huntsman or Newt Gingrich or Mitt Romney, at some point you are going against the full breadth and power of the President of the United States. How about the Trump plane? <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about that oh, one? Oh, dear. I think, that, I think the Trump plane is, is uh, not quite Air Force One recognizable, but he may be using that to chase Getting down there. the president's birth uh, certificate. I uh, see the Trump plane at the tarmac at LaGuardia all the time. It's a great, great old 727. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, and we talked about this from a polyoptics perspective when we were discussing the president's trip to Latin America. But I want to play devil's advocate for a second. Um, and again, we, we spoke to Ed Gillespie earlier in the show about just this uh, element of incumbency, its advantages and its challenges. But the president is in a difficult spot right now where he's trying to balance, even on a trade mission, um, being involved in foreign policy, involved in, in the mission that he's on, and trying to keep a, a public face for Americans that is both hopeful, d- exhibits leadership. And I, I really subscribe to this idea that incumbency has way more challenges with it. It is hard to be real, hard to get that authentic, uh, meet the, 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 the voters kind of events because everything the president does is big. It's go big or go home. And, you know, a lot of what you need to run for president is almost the opposite, Jeannie. I agree. And again, they have a lot to live up to. I mean, I am still... Uh, can see his speech in uh, at the convention. Um, you know, I mean, that campaign uh, in 2008 was just like nothing we've ever seen. I mean, he was new. He was different. Uh, he was our first African-American president. Um, and he's got to, it's going to be hard, I think, to recapture, you, you know, the old flame, if you will. And it, it's hard for every president to do it. But uh, I think his campaign in particular was such a... Um, change, if you will, hope and change, if we remember. And I think that is going to be hard to recreate. And so they're not even going to try, I wouldn't imagine. So what are they going to do? What That's what I'm waiting for. You know, you get to the end of a presidency and, and uh, <laughs> you, you start to, and we've made fun of this, and this is true through uh, the Clinton administration, uh, George H.W. Bush, you start to realize that to some extent, 
the president is making trips to do official events because he has political events that are really driving the calendar, Josh. And uh, it's the, if you're a journalist or if you're you know the director of media affairs at the White House, the thing you're listening for the most is the unguarded <laughs> speech to the uh, to the faithful where the red meat gets given out. And that's a Barack Obama who is fired up and he's yelling and he's getting people totally worked up. And that's a distinctly different persona than the commander in chief that uh, that we see so often. That's so right, Adam. If you think about the standard schedule of a uh, official slash political trip, that any president does. You leave, You the president walks out on the South Lawn, gets onto Marine One, flies to Andrews Air Force Base, takes off in Air Force One. Two hours later, he's at a city in a new media market and does a quote-unquote official event, something that is supported by uh, White House apparatus, White House correspondence, White House uh, communications agency. And then the press has time to file their stories for the next day's paper, presumably about the policy thing that the president talked about, and it's time to head off to the fundraiser. And it is at these more partisan events in the evening when reporters should be reminded to keep their tape recorders on, because it is during those events that the stuff that is less scripted comes out. That's what David Broder said, the late David Broder. He said, I never made the mistake of going back to the hotel to catch a beer (laughs) and miss the last event of the day because those were usually the moments the candidates were most unguarded and that uh, news could actually be committed. I want to thank Jeannie Mamo and John Halinko for joining Josh and I here on Polyoptics. A great discussion. Uh, Your insights into this uh, is so different than a lot of the talking heads that people might hear uh, on cable news. We've all lived it. We've been there on the front lines making decisions and being a part of what ultimately elevates or does not elevate an individual to the presidency of the United States. Uh, Thank you for being on Polyoptics, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Josh, Polyoptics has become a radio show here on POTUS that we're getting a lot of feedback from folks. We are you know, very grateful to POTUS and to Joe Matthew for having uh, helped create this show and, and help us bring it forward on this platform. But our own Facebook page is starting to take off, and I hope people will go there, seek us out. You can find us on the POTUS Facebook page and join our conversation. We've got a website, too. Polyoptics.com, and it's where... About a year ago, I just started these musings on presidential imagery, style, uh, design, substance, uh, and what it goes what goes into making the image of the president. And uh, not a week goes by, Adam, not a day goes by when I don't look at the newspaper, magazines, TV, and now online and see how really there there's a lot of thought that goes into crafting a presidential image. Josh, you have brought this discussion. Uh, to a number of really prominent colleges and universities uh, in the United States so far, uh, some Ivy League schools and others. But as we start to engage here on POTUS, uh, Sirius XM, this discussion, I'm finding that there's so many people who share our keen eye and a sensibility that just as things appear may not necessarily uh, reflect how they actually are. I got the idea for Polyoptics, Adam, from this blog that I read called UniWatch, the obsessive study of athletic uh, uh, uniforms and style. And uh, 
they're and I'm just amazed by how many people are focused on how high people wear their socks, what kind of patches get on <laughs> uniforms, and there's so much more that goes into the game than just what's being played on the field. So I think as I go around to these campuses, as I do more talks, as we start looking at the week in, week out battle between candidates in New Hampshire, Iowa, and elsewhere, we're going to see this play out over and over again. I want to thank everybody, including uh, Catherine Caperton, who's our uh, producer here in Washington, for being with us here on Polyoptics here on POTUS. 